This is Fortune's Wheel, podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. At the last minute, I decided to make this Patreon members-only episode a public one as well. It's going to pull double duty here. I don't know. I love the content, so it'd be great if I could share it with more people. So that's kind of a driver here, but I feel that about all of my Patreon episodes. It's really an opportunity to offer a glimpse into what's going on in our Patreon members-only group. I'm proud of it, that's for sure, and I'm eternally grateful for those of you who have decided this podcast was worth your time and have signed up on Patreon, and I encourage others to do that as well. That, and what we're talking about on this episode, this originally a Patreon members-only episode, fits pretty nicely into where we are on the public narrative as well. So why not spread the love? And finally, I know in the last episode I set up a major character in the story of the Norman Conquest of England that we would get to on this episode, episode 89. But again, this just fits really nicely, pretty perfectly actually, and it adds to this person's context. So please be patient. We will hear his story on the next one, I promise. So here we go. This Patreon episode 11 doubling as episode 89 on the public podcast is entitled Malcolm in the Middle. I hope you enjoy the show. Quote, Malcolm III, called Canmore, or Greathead, was a brave and wise prince, though without education. He often made war upon King William the Conqueror of England, and upon his son and successor William, who, from his complexion, was called William Rufus, that is, Red William. End quote. This is a passage from the Tales of a Grandfather by Sir Walter Scott, though not published until more than 850 years after the Battle of Hastings, it's still a pretty accurate introduction to King Malcolm III of Scotland. We here on the podcast know of Malcolm Canmore already as the boy who was chased across the Scottish highlands, lowlands, islands, and even into Northumbria next door by the Scottish King Macbeth, until years later, Malcolm's forces defeated Macbeth, killing Macbeth. And then he took the crown of the Scots for good. Well, that was the year 1058. Not only did Malcolm Canmore's crowning end a long Scottish succession crisis, which, yes, did include the reign of King Macbeth, but according to Magnus Magnuson in his book, Scotland, the Story of a Nation, quote, it also marked the start of a highly formative period in the development of and he has it in quotation marks, Scotland, as a modern state, end quote. Now, Magnuson also mentions that it was during Malcolm Canmore's 35-year reign that Scotland's modern borders with England began to resemble what we see today, almost a thousand years later. Magnuson says, quote, at this time, there was no recognized border between the kingdoms of Scotland and England, end quote. Interestingly, the man they mocked as Big Head actually created a Scottish dynasty that would lead the Northern Kingdom for well over 200 more years. 
this dynasty called either the Canmore dynasty, of course directly referencing its creator, but also as the House of Dunkeld, a nod to Malcolm III's noble clan. See, as we know, it all started with the death, again, of King Macbeth, but honestly, it seems like the only reason we remember with any significance the historical Macbeth is due to the great bard himself, William Shakespeare. To me, Malcolm Canmore's story as a king really begins with the death of someone more or less lost to history, not Macbeth. In those days, Scotland, or as they just referred to themselves, the land of the Scots, was more of a description rather than a formal name. It was referred to in the records mainly as Alba, or even Scotia, depending on which language it was written in. In fact, the Scotland we know of today was still a collection of Gaelic clans, maintaining order in the various regions. And no wonder, Scotland is a land of breathtaking beauty. Enormous white peaks, craggy slopes, high-altitude bogs, and a climate that matched the gruffness and hardiness of its inhabitants. To hold such a land together would take immense influence, wealth, and respect, begrudging or not. Now, this death I spoke of, the one that, in my very humble opinion on the matter, really kicked off Malcolm's reign as a net positive for the region, was from the farthest northern reaches of Scotland, actually. Now, the thing about Scotland is that it's, it's not just a mainland. You know, the northern mountainous third of the entire island. <laughs> it actually extends off coast on three sides a considerable way. And in the far north, there was a series of rocky islands we, and they a thousand years ago, call the Orkneys. And the Orkneys were at the time led by a powerful chieftain named Jarl Thorfinn the Mighty. As Magnuson explains, we don't exactly know when this Jarl Thorfinn the Mighty died. Sometime between, we think, 1057 and 1065. I know, I know, that's quite a gap. But that detail is far less important when compared to its implications. See, when Thorfinn the Mighty died, the Orkneys became vulnerable. And Malcolm Canmore recognized this and made a move to consolidate the disintegrating earldoms into his purview. Malcolm had made a move to marry either Thorfinn's widow or daughter. The records aren't actually decided on those. Her name was Ingbjorg, and she was the bridge connecting the farthest Orkney communities with the mainland kingdom. But that's not all she gave to Scotland. She ended up giving birth to two boys, Duncan and Donald, of the House of Dunkeld, of which Donald the youngest would die in 1085, while the oldest, Duncan, would one day become King Duncan II. With the Northern Territories quelled, Malcolm Canmore could focus on more important matters on the mainland. No longer would the very Norse Ivikinger go raiding coastal Scottish communities, which was an ever-present concern for Scots everywhere. And the Orkneys were no longer under the direct control, by the way, or even influence of the Norse king. As after the death of Hardrada, Norway had their own worries to, uh, about the succession of their king. If you remember, Earl Seward was the powerful Earl of Northumbria under Knut, Harold Harefoot, Hartha Knut, 
and King Edward, who was instrumental, this guy, in keeping Malcolm Canmore alive while he was on the lamb from King Macbeth as an adolescent. But in 1055, Seward died, leaving Northumbria in disarray for a short time. Now, King Edward of England elevated Tostig Godwinson to the rank of Earl, and as we know, that went over like a lead balloon with the Northumbrians. It went so dismally that Malcolm Canmore, now King of Scotland by 1061, led him to invade, which wasn't exactly a peaceful means to an end, but it sure showed the English that the new King of the Scots was no one to take lightly. The Northumbrians would never forget this either. And this is to say nothing of the fact as soon as Malcolm took the crown and was reportedly betrothed to Margaret, King Edward's grandniece, more on that later, before the 1061 raids, which were a little on the heavy side, Malcolm actually led a customary simple raid on England. He led a small Scottish force in and out of Lindisfarne in 1059, but as Tostig was in Rome at the time, and King Edward and Tostig both weren't exactly jiving with the northern house of Bamborough, no one much cared that Lindisfarne was raided. Lindisfarne being inside the purview of the house of Bamborough, of course. So Malcolm pretty much established himself as a presence, albeit still a minor one to the north, in terms of how the English might have seen them. The Scots weren't exactly Edward's major concern, is what I'm saying. He had internal struggles, specifically with the House of Godwin, to tend to until his death. And upon his death, King Harold Godwinson didn't much worry about the Scots either, as his brother had recruited the one and only King Harold Hardrada of Norway at the same time as Duke William of Normandy was flexing his muscles across the channel. And when William defeated Harold Godwinson, well, his attentions, that is William's, attentions couldn't afford to drift further than a few miles from any given location he found himself in because the English erupted in rebellion seemingly everywhere he turned, like for years. This we all know from the public podcast. Now, King Malcolm III of Scotland, between the years 1059 and 1069, well, he was virtually free to continue his reign in relative peace. England was occupied to his south. Norway was reeling from the loss of Hardrada. Ireland was just getting out of the little tailspin that the death of Brian Baru caused decades earlier. And Denmark was simply reveling in the fact that Norway was no longer threatening them daily, as they had for almost two decades. Despite hearing news from all these places, Scotland was actually fairly nicely up uh, doing pretty well up until around 1070. Around 1070, this is when Malcolm must have been, well, he must have began getting a tad bit more nervous, a bit anxious. When William's rage drifted steadily northward, Malcolm took notice. But when it reached as far as Durham, he knew things could easily spill over into Scotland. And this is when Malcolm proactively tried to get out in front of the situation. He'd already given a quarter and diplomatic immunity of sorts to William's rival to the throne of England, that is, Edgar Etheling. But Malcolm chose to finally follow through with something in 1070 that firmly placed him at odds with the mighty King William I. 
though the records are wishy-washy on the whole betrothal to Margaret thing. That's what I had mentioned earlier. Whether it was in fact 1059 that he was betrothed or not is hotly debated. The accepted official year of marriage, the wedding itself, to Margaret is 1070. The second half of the year, 1070, that is, which isn't a trivial uh, bit of information to have. Given the speed of communication a thousand years ago, this is lightning fast from the time that Malcolm must have received word of the full extent of William's harrying in the region to Malcolm's immediate south. If Malcolm didn't act soon, he might find himself coerced into serving William's interests instead of his own and Scotland's at large. And now we shift to Margaret. Margaret was known to be kind, generous, pious. Her life was one of a glass bottle riding the waves and currents of a tumultuous ocean of medieval European politics and religion. She can be seen, in the words of Magnus Magnuson, describing a relief of her in St. Margaret's Chapel in Edinburgh, which, she, which bears her name, by the way as, quote, flaxen-haired and beautiful, flanked by handmaidens at their sewing and holding an open book on her lap, end quote. Elegance, beautiful, graceful. Well, those are a few more adjectives that could and have described Margaret. Today, Scots also know her as the Pearl of Scotland. The Tales of the Grandfather says the following about her, quote, she was an excellent woman and of such a gentle, amiable disposition that she often prevailed upon her husband, who was a fierce, passionate man, to lay aside his resentment and forgive those who had offended him. End quote. Margaret, essentially, at least in tradition, acted as Malcolm Canmore's counterbalance. Remind you of another royal wife in our narrative by chance? This daughter of Edward the Exile was born not in Scotland and not in England, but in the kingdom of Hungary. She was born in exile. Her father was exiled after King Canute the Great took the throne of England and threatened the family of his then-deceased rival, the legendary Edmund Ironsides, her grandfather. Her first language was Hungarian. She took her first communion in Hungary, and she was raised in the same court that navigated the horribly treacherous waters that existed between the Holy Roman Empire and a rising Poland, as well as refugees from the deadly succession crises occurring in Kiev at the time. She most certainly met a younger Earl Harold Godwinson as he traveled to Hungary to collect her father and bring him back to be groomed as heir to the English kingdom upon King Edward II's death, King Edward being his uncle, mind you and she may have even bore witness to a pope or two as well. Much of this is mere guesswork, of course, but I feel like they are some pretty confident, strong guesses due to what we know about the court of Hungary at the time. Margaret was certainly a special woman, and she was certainly a strategic betrothal for someone who might have her, for someone who might be wanting to be on the inside of English politics and succession even. She knew the continental politics pretty intimately, and she was raised quite cosmopolitan, all things considered. Hungary was certainly coming along as a top-shelf power in the 11th century, albeit they would remain eclipsed by the Holy Roman Empire to their west and north 
and the Eastern Roman Empire to their east and south. There's no question that, by the time she reached England in the early 1060s, she was quite the catch, especially considering she was known for her refinement and beauty as well. Scotland seems pretty lucky, it seems to me, to count her among their own, even down to today. But when she married Malcolm III of Scotland, things weren't so certain, or promising. In fact, with the likes of William of Normandy inching ever closer to their southern border, both Malcolm and Margaret, and the rest of the Scottish kingdom for that matter, couldn't guarantee what the future would hold for them. Remember, Margaret, again, was the daughter of Edward the Exile, making her also the sister of one Edgar Etheling, the young man already voted king in 1066, and who willingly gave it up to William. Upon this action outside London in late 1066, as we know, William made Edgar Etheling and his whole retinue, including Earls Morcar and Edwin, mind you, along with others, his quote-unquote honored guests. He returned to Normandy in early 1067 and paraded them around the duchy as the spoils of war, the former heirs to the nobility of England, whom he'd quelled and now controlled. Margaret joined her brother Edgar on this whirlwind propaganda tour on the continent, which put her within reach of many big names at the time. William, of course, and his queen Matilda of Flanders, their children, Robert Curthose, Richard, William Rufus, and so on, one William Fitzosborne, maybe even the King of France himself, or the chronicler and fanboy William Poitier. These folks are all in the running for the people who Margaret came across, or could have come across, was in the presence of even, or even formally met, I don't know. Margaret was worldly in ways that Malcolm Canmore simply wasn't. Where Malcolm was illiterate, Margaret Margaret is said to have been able to read and write, Magnuson writes of her, quote, She enjoyed the rich trappings of royalty, but she also spent many hours in prayer and fed the poor regularly and washed their feet, end quote. Where Malcolm busied himself with war and politics, Margaret busied herself when she wasn't giving birth to one of their six sons and two daughters, that is, with the people of Scotland. And not necessarily only the Scottish, mind you. The tales of the grandfather once said, quote, A very great number of the Saxons who fled the cruelty of William the Conqueror retired in Scotland, and this had a considerable effect in civilizing the southern parts of that country. For if the Saxons were inferior to the Normans in arts and in learning, they were, on the other hand, much superior to the Scots, who were a rude and very ignorant people. No doubt the number of Saxons thus introduced to Scotland tended much to improve and civilize the manners of the people. End quote. Not my words, don't shoot the messenger. Now, to what degree this is true, I'm not sure, but it does indicate a sense that with the merging of Scottish and English royal families during the time of the conquest, mainly, there was also a merging of two long-separated peoples. She might have served as a, uh, a royal buffer, especially in her approach to the poor. Margaret would go on to lead movements to renew and rebuild the churches in Scotland, all over, modernizing them and making them appealing for foreigners to come and create lasting communities of learners and monks. In fact, it was at her behest that the monks at Canterbury 
sent three Benedictine monks to establish a Benedictine priory at Dunfermline, the place of her wedding. I probably butchered that name, so I apologize. Magnuson writes, quote, She revived the cult of St. Andrew and encouraged pilgrims to go there by giving them free passage across the Forth. The names of South and North Queens Ferry on either side of the estuary of the Forth still carry the memory of this initiative, end quote. And this life experience made her infinitely more valuable than just the sister of the supposed claim to England's throne. Sure, she had the blood of Edmund Ironsides and King Ethelred II coursing through her veins, but she was culturally and experientially linked in many ways that mere genetics couldn't even begin to compare to. Margaret had life experiences, she had insight, she had knowledge, and she also had an even bigger heart. When those reports of the sheer devastation left by William in the north of his kingdom reached Malcolm's ears, the time for sitting the fence, as I said earlier, was over. He had given Edgar Etheling a couch to crash on for a couple years now, ever since the party returned from Normandy on display like they were a, like they were a dangerous yet tamed menagerie in a zoo. And it was time to finally throw his hat in the rink, if anything, to declare once and for all that the Scottish borders was simply not a line to cross. By giving safe harbor to Edgar Etheling, he merely stated that he wished to stay relevant on the island. However, by marrying into Edgar Etheling's own family, he was throwing his lot in banking on the fact that his progeny might one day succeed to the throne of England, implying that Edgar Etheling should be on the throne of England, not William. See, this marriage was more than just a marriage to a royal, or at the time even just a noble English house. This marriage was a declaration of war, in a sense. A cold war, but war nonetheless. There was one problem, though, that must be solved before his marriage to Margaret would take place, however. Malcolm III was currently married to Ingeborg, again, the daughter of a powerful lo local Scottish chieftain from, from the Orkneys. But before anyone gets excited about some new side quest in the narrative we're all about to embark upon, Malcolm, well, some say, simply divorced Ingeborg. I mean, let's be honest, remain married to a local chieftain and be really, really Scottish? Or divorce the Scottish lady and marry into the royal house of Wessex with the outside chance that you're marrying into the line of the next however many kings and queens of your powerful, wealthy, and influential neighbor. And though Scotland was on the surface in the 11th century very much seen as a Christian kingdom, all those pesky rules and whatnot regarding Catholic and royal marriages hadn't quite dug in that far north yet. And divorce would actually be quite easy for Malcolm to pursue if he wanted. Well, that's just an underhand pitch if there ever was one. So um, if divorce was it, off you go, Ingbjorg. Hello, Margaret. But the records indicate that divorce was most likely unnecessary, despite the plans for it. The records hint that Ingeborg died sometime before 1070. Foul play or not, we have no clue, really. But most likely, just knowing how absolutely dreadful childbirth could be in those days, 
she might have died bearing Malcolm what would have been his fourth child with her. We just don't know. Either way, the path was paved by 1070, no matter what happened, to Mary Margaret of the line of the mighty House of Wessex. And there, in the chapel in Dunfermline, the Bishop of St. Andrews presided, wedding the House of Alfred to the House of Canmore. Anglo-Saxon England to Scotland. We know that rings were used in Scottish wedding ceremonies, though not used whole cloth around the continent for centuries more. And though this practice continues down to most of the Western world today, this practice of exchanging rings, there is one practice that doesn't exactly transfer. See, today, just as many kingdoms and cultures a thousand years ago, required the woman, upon marriage, to transfer all traditional history once the dowry has been secured by the husband and the marriage consummated. However, in Scotland in the 11th century, that tradition held that women were most certainly retained, uh, that they retained a claim to their ancestral story and inheritance, including their surnames. By marrying, say, and I'm just using this as an example, mind you, by marrying Robert Curthose, for instance, William the Conqueror's firstborn, Margaret would have effectively erased the House of Wessex altogether from her claim. However, by marrying Malcolm III of Scotland, she was able to retain this claim, this hold on the hearts of her countrymen and women to the south of her new kingdom. In the hearts and minds of the impoverished, tyrannized, and desperate English, one can't help but wonder... Had they known this tradition, and it's likely that certain pockets in Northumbria might very well have known this tradition, if they still held out some semblance of hope that a Scottish salvation might come their way. I just don't know. But so it was that in late 1070, in the wake of the harrying of the North, and arguably because of it, that King Malcolm III made his move to declare what side of the fence he officially stood on regarding William the Conqueror. From this point on, he would declare his intentions to stand up against such tyranny, to rail against the pretender on his brother-in-law's throne, to cast his resources to free the good people of England, rid the island of its continental tormentor, and restore... Wait, 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 wait. Hang on. <laughs> that can't be right. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's not exactly right. Well, maybe at first, but it definitely didn't last for any effectual period of time, all of that. See, after his wedding day, Malcolm III did seem to have a little more, um, how should we say, hitch in his giddy-up, you could say. In fact, he almost immediately threw his hat into the ring and raided Northumbrian borderlands west of Durham, just to test the waters, you know, to, to see how William responded. And to be honest... William didn't respond, which could be interpreted as a slap in the face to Malcolm. So, Malcolm sent Edgar Etheling and some Scottish warriors back into Northumbria to raid and try to rally support for Edgar's re-emergence as a real rival to the throne. The problem there is that even if they actually found Northumbrians to try to convince to support them, as many of them were already dead as we know, they were so badly shaken, these Northumbrians, that they weren't so eager to join forces against William again. The herring really did a number 
on the minds of the English, especially the further north you went. Besides, as Magnus Magnuson writes, Malcolm's actions in the north between 1070 and 1072, quote, did little more than add to the cruel devastation of Yorkshire, end quote. Didn't really think that one through, did he? However, Malcolm's small-scale raids on these northern on William's northern borders did eventually alert William to the potential long-term problems that Scotland represented. And for the first time since the Roman invasions of the island, what, some 1500 years earlier, Scotland was invaded with a full-scale invasionary force. And nothing like what was brought across the channel in 1066. Uh, or even across the North Sea from Norway that same year. But regardless, nothing like it had occurred since the likes of Julius Caesar, if you can believe it. Magnuson writes, quote, In 1072, he, that is William, invaded Scotland with a large, well-organized army, supported by a fleet, end quote. Now, here's more or less the best play-by-play we get, and it's from Magnuson again. So he continues, quote, William marched through Lothian and across the River Forth at Stirling and went on to the River Tay. Malcolm realized that his own forces were no match for the powerful host of Norman knights and men-at-arms and refused to give battle. Frustrated by Malcolm's delaying tactics, William offered to talk terms at Abernethy on the Tay. The treaty which resulted is known in English sources as the Abernethy Submission, end quote. So Malcolm was probably spot on in not engaging William in battle. Let's just be honest there, give him a little credit. William had built up quite the reputation by this point, as you can imagine, and Malcolm was unquestionably familiar with that reputation. But this Abernethy Submission, it's pretty interesting, actually. I'll let Magnuson describe it in greater detail. He says, quote, Malcolm apparently submitted to William. He gave hostages and was his man. He agreed not to harbor English enemies, for instance, Edgar Etheling, and surrendered his eldest son, Duncan, who, by the way, my side note here, who was a son from his previous marriage to Ingeborg, as a hostage. But it was a formal act of homage by a king of Scots as a vassal of England? Or was Malcolm only recognizing English suzerainty of the disputed lands of Cumbria and North, Northumbria? End quote. Skipping ahead a little bit, Magnuson writes, quote, Certainly the Abernethy submission would remain a bone of contention between English and Scottish constitutional lawyers for centuries to come. End quote. So let's break this down. This little-known at least here in the States, moment in Scottish-English relations explains an incredible amount of historical issues that, honestly, I've personally never understood exactly why they existed in the first place. I mean, I've watched Braveheart, for whatever that's worth, but I've never known exactly where this entitlement to the Scottish crown came from that the English seem to historically have had. And what makes it even more fascinating is that Though the English presumed that Malcolm III effectively surrendered Scotland's autonomy in so many regards there in 1072, Malcolm behaved over the ensuing decades very much in the opposite of that, 
In fact, Malcolm's raids and invasions of England wouldn't actually stop. Spoiler alert, Malcolm actually died besieging Alnwick Castle in Northumbria in 1093, a moment we'll flesh out in future episodes. So despite what the English thought of the Abernethy submission, was the official Scottish line one of the complete fealty to the King of England? I can't possibly see that being the case. I mean, they didn't even, like, William didn't even win in a pitched battle. It's not like he invaded and took the capital or killed the king himself, the king of Scotland. It was none of that. I can't see how the Abernethy submission completely gave autonomy of Scotland to to the English crown. And I can also understand, though, the intellectual gymnastics it would take for future English scholars to make that case. But I'm sure we'll get there in due time. It certainly adds a new layer, at least for this humble American, to the recent discussions of Scottish secession over the last decade or so. In the end, though Malcolm III's reign is seen as a gigantic, and I mean gigantic, net positive for 11th century Scotland, or really just Scotland in general, he never actually succeeded in his possible plans on the throne of England, even if those plans were to be lived vicariously through his brother-in-law, Edgar Etheling, which, speaking of, whatever happened to poor little Edgar Etheling after the terms of the Abernethy sub- submission booted him from Scotland? I'll give you one guess. Hint. It's where seemingly every English no- noble family seemed to have a vacation home for just, a, just such a circumstance as being exiled. The answer should be straight up dinger of a home run if you've paid even a cursory attention to this podcast. That's right. The county of Flanders is where he went. And what's more, Flanders was now run by a strong anti-William count and Robert the Frisian brother of Queen Matilda, which adds some complexity to this whole situation. We fleshed this out on the last Patreon episode. For two years, Edgar hung out with Robert the Frisian, if anything, just to piss William off to no end. And in 1074, further evidence, mind you, supporting the idea that Malcolm III never actually submitted his kingdom to William's overlordship, Edgar Etheling in 1074 was actually invited back explicitly from explicitly from uh, Malcolm III, invited back to Scotland for fresh rounds of raiding and scheming against the crown of England. Malcolm's story, however, still has many, many years to play out, and we'll explore his life and contributions to the overall narrative of the Norman conquest of England as we go on the public podcast. Now, suffice it to say that his marriage to Margaret, though, was one that will have lasting impacts on European history in ways that that rival, in my opinion, William and Matilda's own contributions to the royal families of Europe over the next several centuries. As Magnuson says, quote, Malcolm Canmore will always be overshadowed, in Scottish eyes at least, by the woman who became his second queen sometime between 1069 and 1071. Margaret a princess of old Saxon royal house who would become Scotland's only royal saint. That's right, saint. End quote. It was Margaret who, who is said, according to Magnuson, to either carry the credit or the blame for what's been called the Anglicization 
of both the Scottish church as well as the Scottish culture. And for what it's worth, that may be a fair statement, and they may both equally be right. Regardless of where you stand, the marriage of Malcolm III and Margaret was a powerful one in medieval Europe, and we will be narrating their legacies for quite some time in our overall narrative. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Thank you.